Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and in today's program we talk to Simon Corkwell, also known as Evil Knievel, one of the most notorious short sellers in the market, the man who made more than a million shorting Northern Rock. And Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, is back talking all the usual subjects. A reminder of our disclaimer that nothing in this program constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. It's just an expression of opinion only. Let's crack on with the show. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com I'm talking now to Simon Corkwell. Simon is one of the most famous short sellers in in modern British stock market history, if you like. He's known as Evil Knievel, and uh, he keeps Evil's diary at the website tips.com. That's T1PS.com, tips.com. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Now, why don't you tell us, how did this this, uh, love of short selling come about? Oh, money. (laughs) <laughs> uh, what happened was that uh, I found uh, myself with a lot of long positions in 1973, some of which had not been paid for as fully as they might. And as a result, the broker, who was well known to my family, decided to chuck out a couple of shorts for me and to, to ensure, so to speak, or hedge the portfolio although as we all know that is very rarely the result readily achieved anyway he did sell one of them MFI and of course I've lived with MFI in one form or another (laughs) for the ensuing 35 years anyway I realized that uh, here was an activity which was exciting Um, it wasn't done by other people Above all, it didn't require one to put up any cash, cash, with the result that uh, it was very appealing. I may add that uh, when in in those days one only had the stock exchange account in which to buy things back, and technically one had to uh, do the reverse of cash and new, i.e. new and cash, into the next account, which was very expensive. But uh, all one did then, really, was just to refuse to new in cash. Uh, you just took a couple of bottles of port through to the chap in charge of the back office, and uh, the transaction would be forgotten about. <laughs> Not for weeks, but for months. The power of port. <laughs> Indeed, the power of port, yes. So have you been uh, shorting builders and uh, banking stocks in the last year or so? Well... I have made money out of banking stocks. I've, I've made £1.3 million out of Northern Rock. And I had done pretty well out of Bradford and Bingley and Alliance and Leicester. And, well, uh, really, it has been a very rich harvest. But I've never been a bank analyst, and I don't in any sense claim uh, to be an expert. At it. I certainly couldn't be an expert at short notice. As you know, it's a very, very specialised sector. You either know it or you don't, and I don't. 
And uh, so therefore I haven't, for instance, uh, been minded to go bashing things like Barclays or, say, H-Boss. It just hasn't uh, crossed my mind. At at what point did you start shorting Northern Rock? Um, Well, it had gone up very high, and someone rang me up to say that uh, it doesn't look quite right from a balance sheet perspective, in all probability, once it's panned out. And um, I'd made 50000 on the long tag, and then I thought, well, we ought to start selling a bit of this. But I did it very amateurishly, just a dribble here and a dribble there. Mm-hmm. But the real, the real turning point was lying in bed one early morning. Was it a Monday or Friday? I can't remember now. When um, the BBC announced it, was the news. It was a, it was a Thursday evening. Was I it? remember because I was coming back from football. Oh, I see. Well, the news that I picked up was at 6 o'clock in the morning on the BBC ah, Radio okay. 4 Today programme. And it declared that the Bank of England had lent money to Northern Rock. Well, I thought about it for about five seconds. And I thought, well, there are a lot of silly fellows who will think it's out of the kindness of New Labour's large pockets uh, that New- Northern Rock will be given a favourable loan to tide itself over its difficulties. But I said the only reason that the government can possibly make such a loan is that Northern Rock is insolvent. And Northern Rock's shares were therefore, to my way of thinking, valueless. And indeed, this is what they'll prove to be when the thing pans out. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, we had a little bit of a hiccup on the uh, Are you still short or are you... Oh, yes, certainly. Yes, I've oh. still got to have some covered in the pan-out at the nationalisation right. price. Um, but it, it, it was a little tricky because I had never foreseen that um, Philip Richards of RAB Capital or that fellow Wood of SRM would dream of buying shares. And uh, every time uh, it was reported they bought shares, one had as a matter of modesty to review one's position. But really, I never had any cause to doubt and I put uh, these purchases by those two parties down to an attack of lunacy. Well, I must say, I was amazed, particularly Philip Richards, because, for I mean, he almost single-handedly made the bull market in junior mining stocks happen in the mm. early part of this century yes. with all his uh, funding. Yes. And he must have been to so many conferences and heard so many gold bugs yes. speak that I was amazed to see him buying into a, into a bank. Yes, uh, it was an odd investment decision. I think one has to understand that his psyche is based on the proposition that he can move whatever market he deigns to enter. But I think uh, RAB's uh, reputation in this area has been uh, greatly reduced, and and indeed, by the Northern Rock affair, it's been greatly damaged. Uh, what, it, what that means for RAB in the longer term, I don't know. Now, um, let me ask you a question. We, I mean, you're, I presume, do you short commodities? No, I have uh, played commodities in the past, but I'm not an expert at it. And um, although I've made money out of it, I regard that as simply a product of luck. It's got nothing to do with knowledge or good judgment. And... Are you a believer in the kind of long-term commodity story, the 20-year bull market, the secular cycle and all all the rest? 
Well, it depends on what you mean by believe. However, it seems to me quite probable, uh, I don't think it's an article of religious faith, this. It's a question of judgment, as always, isn't it? It seems to me probable that there will be a continuing high demand for uh, metals, and there will be a continuing high demand for soft commodities, and a new age has dawned in those industries. But the junior, I mean, I know you 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 own a lot of stock in Chryso Resources. Yes. Are you a fan of junior mining stocks generally? I mean, I know they've because they've been a bit of a disaster area over yeah, the past yes year. Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, the problem is that, as has become all too clear in recent months, unless there are well-founded um, financing plans or arrangements uh, to bring these juniors into production, the exploration side is not really of much interest to the market. How long this goes on for, I don't know. Uh, there, there are ridiculous results uh, applying at the moment. However you look at it, Creso is very cheap. I mean, yeah. that, that must be so. But the fact is that uh, it may go on being cheap simply because others are not prepared to take the longer view. The, the question I'm gradually working towards is, have you, been, have you yourself been shorting various, any junior companies? No, it's always very dangerous to short junior mining companies. Where one has evidence of a fraud, then I think a different territory has entered. But just to short on the basis of market sentiment or perhaps lower grades than you th in expectation mm. than, than are expected by the market, uh, it's a fool's errand. And besides, typically you can't borrow stock. The spreads are very wide. The dealing prices are very, very weakly observed by the market. So I just don't bother. And when you say a fraud, you you mean another Briex or? Yes, I mean to put it in its most in its most graphic form. But there mm. are variations of this. Yeah, uh, exaggerations. Yes. <laughs> and uh, one thing we hear a great deal about uh, from the other side of the pond is this business of naked short selling. Yes. And apparently, we're told it's rife in Canadian junior mining stocks. Is this something you've had any experience of or any knowledge of? Yes, I'm. I'm proud to be able to say that. Through my broker, I have received a notice from the SEC um, remarking that if I do any more naked shorts, that is to say, without borrowing stock, uh, then all hell will drop <laughs> upon me from the SEC. Well, I've got news for you boys out there. I'm not going on holiday in America ever. <laughs> <laughs> So, what are your what are your um, techniques when you're shorting a stock? What's your what's your strategy? Do you use charts or do you use uh, fundamentals or what, what's your strategy? Well, strategy uh, I think is rather a pompous word for how do you come to a decision. Uh, well, the answer to that is the primary impeller to come to a decision is greed, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then. Then you, it's necessary to assemble the evidence. Uh, I, I'm very keen on balance sheets. And uh, if they look weak to me, I accept that they won't necessarily go down on Monday or Wednesday or even three months' time. Mm -hmm. But a weak balance sheet usually causes trouble in the end. 
Um, it's worth noting that going back whew, 30 years or so, uh, when Polly Peck got underway with Azulnadir, it was obviously a doubtful company or a company to be doubted right from the outset. But uh, it didn't half move along for 10 plus years. And uh, anyone who tried to stay short of this stock would have had a pretty rough time. There's a small matter of timing. Mm -hmm. So what's your kind of view of the markets in general? Would you... I mean, we we spoke before the interview started about UK housing. Mm. You you're pretty bearish on that, like everyone mm. else. I I, mm. I gather. Mm. Um, is but it's kind of too late to go short, or certainly to short the builders. Uh, I wouldn't be dogmatic along those lines. I mean, I think you're quite right that uh, house prices have got much further to fall. I say you're quite right. You didn't actually assert that that would happen, but I think from your smile I can tell that you think (laughs) that it might. And it seems to me like house prices will fall a lot further. Their current level is a combination of factors, all of which seem to me to be rapidly reversing right as we speak. So it's reasonable to expect these house prices to go much lower. Are you on the short side of the market in any way or form? No, I've I made a mess of it, if I'm candid about it. But, I mean, for instance, um, I got terrifically burnt by the, the shorting countrywide. And if that had not succeeded, and another week or two uh, after it was completed, the thing would have started to coll- collapse irrevocably. But I was just unlucky on that. But, you know... There are plenty of other property stocks, in one way or another, sitting around to be thumped. For instance, at the moment, I'm short of a little company called LSL Property. And this is a really beautiful stock to be short of, because uh, it's theoretically wrong. If you go to the balance sheet and look at its trades, you now see they're going to have a, a, a dramatic drop in income, whereas their costs will be largely unchanged. Meanwhile, the liabilities on the balance sheet greatly exceed tangible assets, so the outlook for LSL seems to me to be pretty grim. Now, what's interesting about this is that the management, until very recently, were buying more shares. And I don't know why they did, because they must have known at the time they made these purchases that things were stacking up in a very gloomy way. I think it can only be that there's a certain class of manager who thinks that his energy alone can suspend gravity. But uh, it's hard otherwise to explain this sort of conduct. But anyway, I think that's an interesting short. It's certainly in the property sector, which you asked for. And have you built up a lot of enemies over the years with your... I mean, you're pretty uh, straight-talking... And you, yes. don't, you don't pull any punches. No. And I imagine if I was the director of a company that you were short, mm. I wouldn't be overly happy about the fact. Have you made a lot of enemies? Well, one of the things about these enemies is that almost to a man, they're complete creeps. So they don't come out of the woodwork, or perhaps I say creep out from under the sofa, to make a complaint. They speak behind their muffled hands or whatever lying about me, but as to who they are or what they say or to whom they say it, 
or on what terms. I have not the faintest clue, and frankly, given that basis, I decline to speculate. I do not care. And do, do you just uh, speculate with your own money? Do you invest other people's money? Or is, is well, it's it my family's money. Your family money. Yes. And um, how many positions do you keep open at any given moment? Far too many, as it happens. Uh, I should think at the moment I must have about 60 positions open, which is too many. But on the other hand, um, I'm a, a restless seeker after the opening of more new positions. And so this is the result. <laughs> mm-hmm. In terms of your general view, what areas do you feel bullish about and what areas do you feel bearish about? Well... I'm not really a person who remotely thinks his opinion on what it's right to be bullish about is of any interest to anybody at all. Well, I'm interested, and I asked. All right, fair enough. Uh, I'm not an expert on junior oils, Mm -hmm. but I think there are some amazing bargains out there for those who are patient. One has to remember that since, I suppose late 2004, many of these junior companies have, for whatever reason, been in what I could only call cyclical decline as liquidity has withdrawn from the AIM market. Well, under these circumstances, few people are prepared to rush in and buy stock because they know that however cheap the stock is, it'll be cheaper next week. Meanwhile, those who... Uh, want to raise some money for this reason or that reason, are selling. So the stocks have gone down and down. The effect of this, of course, uh, has been to leave a wide-open scooping opportunity. And um, I think amongst junior oils, the opportunities are staggering uh, as to where it goes and when and just which stocks should get the kiss is is for others to decide. But... Do you not think the um, AIM stocks suffer from being on AIM? Uh, Well, I think you might, in the same breath, say, do small companies enjoy uh, private investor following at the moment in hard cash terms? And the answer to that is no. Uh, There's nothing intrinsically wrong with AIM uh, as regards as a forum where people can buy and sell shares. Do you not think the uh, huge spreads? Well, I think the spreads the are ri- transparency. I think the spreads are ridiculous, uh, but uh, until the government is prepared to let uh, individuals, in effect, become market makers in stocks, this will continue. And I think it's, the present arrangement is, is undoubtedly foolish, but that's what we've got. Um, I think I'd go a stage further. I think there's a rising recognition that the cost of non-execs and nomads and brokers, etc., and, and of course the colossal cost of joining him, is really just too much. Uh, and personally, I can't believe these fees are justifiable in the long term. And uh, if I were in the business of advising young companies as to whether they should or should not come to AIM, on balance, I would say, forget it. Go off to plus markets because you're not going to have any more liquidity on AIM than you will on plus. And, and the cost of going on to plus is much less than on AIM and the, and the recurring annual costs are much less on plus than on AIM. 
So sooner or later, it seems to me, AIM will have to come into line with uh, PLUS um, practice. PLUS is uh, it's starting to happen for PLUS. It looks that way, and I think it's an admirable result. I've always been amazed by the pomposity of the London Stock Exchange and the vast amount of money wasted in the administration of that organisation. And, of course, the way to cure that is to have competition. I regard PLUS's arrival as immensely desirable. So do I. <laughs> do, do you own a lot of Canadian juniors? Oh, one or two. Over the years, I've owned lots of them, but I, I suppose I've got about five of them at the moment. I can't remember what they are, to tell the truth. OK. <laughs> UK PLC, the, yes. the, the outlook for, for, the, for the FTSE and, and, and Britain in general in the coming years. I mean, if you look at balance sheets, yes. Britain's balance sheets don't look particularly good. Well, these are fascinating questions because, of course, um, winding things back very swiftly, if, if we may, for a moment. I remember returning from Africa in 1973, and although I wasn't, I think, particularly explicit in my criticism, I could not understand why this country had to be run so badly. The socialists... Uh, always insisted upon uh, labour relations that always had to fail. Uh, anybody who succeeded was breaking the rules. Everything had to be done slowly. Everything had to be done inefficiently. I, sli- I slightly exaggerate, of mm-hmm. course, but people seemed to glory in mediocrity. And the tax system, of course, was quite hopeless. I don't know why people took so long to realise it just had to be corrected, it had to stop being silly, and had to stop pandering to the lowest common denominator. That I didn't understand. But anyway, with Thatcher's arrival in 1979, things looked up, and I think there's no getting away from it. The general attitude uh, of the British nowadays to getting things done is quite fantastically different to what it was 30 years ago. So in a sense, I think the outlook is pretty optimistic. However, I am strongly of the view that regulation is essentially sclerotic now, and uh, it's all right in easy times to have high cost of administration because the boom times swamp those costs. But I'm afraid getting business in now will be much harder, but the costs remain unaltered. In fact, my suspicion is they're still going up. And as a result, um, I imagine there will have to be some sort of revulsion towards these costs. Unfortunately, many of them are set in stone through statute, and although statutes can be reversed, it's a slow affair. And then, of course, we all have the garbage from Brussels coming in. So, So, not that I am in a position to quantify the extent of the damage or the the, the timing of its arrival, but I suspect that my fellow countrymen are going to have a rough time of it in the coming years, needlessly in my opinion, uh, and the the readjustment will be quite painful. Do you worry about inflation? I don't worry about it in the slightest. Do you Uh, think it's coming? Well, let's be clear as to what one means by inflation. Well, okay. Clear, clearly, as, for instance, oil yeah. and imported food, to name two items, 
costs more, there's a permanent one-off reduction in a citizen's disposable income. But there's another form of inflation, which is caused by a rise in money supply in relation to the goods and services he might otherwise expect to be undiminished in supply. Here, I suspect we are looking at inflation on the way. The government has lied and lied and lied as to what the true costs are, because Brown's essential view is that rather like Stalin, he can tell the big lie on anything he likes. And uh, we've now come to the end of that uh, walking on water mendacity. And as a result, I can see that the money supply will be very large in relation to the supply of goods and services. So I suspect we will have inflation. And knowing the way they are, there will be more and more money pumped into the system because the people aren't going to pay tax, that's for sure. There's far too much tax, as the matter stand. And the end result will be we will have more and more inflation. Do you own a lot of gold? Physically, I don't own gold, nor would I. Why should I? But I've got uh, certainly millions of pounds in gold shares. Why should you? Because gold is a hedge against inflation and gold shares don't always do what gold does. Yes, that's quite true, but I'm not a chap who's um, frightened of being at the end of um, political violence or whatever, anything but. I just sit on my very large bottom all day long, and uh, so I don't really need coinage with which to run off to the end of the world. That's not my problem. As a store of wealth? No, I don't think gold is a store of wealth. It clearly isn't. But uh, the fact is that it could be temporarily a very considerable store of wealth. It seems to me that despite the talk in recent days that the American dollar, U.S. dollar, will appreciate from the positions that it has lately occupied, it seems to me that the problem with the U.S. dollar is completely unchanged. They are still not exporting anything like sufficient in prospect to meet their balance of payments deficiency. This means the dollar will have to be devalued to get the thing on balance. And when interest rates are negligible in the States, large holders of dollars will surely say, well, that's great, chum, but we're coming out. Which currencies do you like? I'm not really an expert in currencies, but my instinct says I'd much sooner be in the yen than I would, for instance... In the US dollars, I just said, or the euro. But I'm not an expert in it, and I don't claim any. Do you like silver? You Ag- again, again, it seems to me silver is a, as an expert subject. I'm not such an expert. I have traded silver, but well, that must have been 15 years ago. And I made a profit. But as I told you earlier, commodity trading has been a profit for me, but I think I've only made it by luck and therefore it's of no interest to me as an activity. Well, Simon, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, and thank you for your uh, strong opinion. We we like strong opinion, and we don't get enough strong opinion in this day and age, particularly not from politicians. Um, Do you want to give out the name of your website where people can read your diary one more time? Well, as a matter of interest, the diary, Evil's Diary, appears three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, It has to be reviewed for defamation, but I can't help that. 
but eventually gets onto the website of t1ps.com. That reads t1ps.com. It sounds like tips.com. I leave listeners to work out the rest for themselves. Good stuff. <laughs> Simon Corkwell, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Michael Hampton is, as ever, in Hong Kong. I'm in London. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's raining here, but uh, apart from that, it's a a nice summer day. Well, it's raining here, too. It's absolutely heaving down. I was about to use some bad language there, but it's, it's... it's, uh, it's raining very hard, but nevertheless, I suppose we can use the raining analogy. I've just been talking to Simon Corkwell, the notorious short seller. Um, is uh, shorting stocks something you've ever indulged in? Well, I do, but not so much as I used to. I mean, uh, the problem with shorting is that uh, if you get it wrong and the price goes up, there's unlimited loss because there's no, you know, there's no absolute limit to where prices can go. Uh, on the other hand, um, um, if if um, if you're long a stock, you can only lose what you put up. So the, the risk reward can be a little bit different, and you know some really sort of nasty things can happen to the short sellers. They're called short squeezes, and that means when you know people are sort of aware of their shorts in the market, and they manage to get get a hold of all of the loose uh, stock. And uh, there's nothing available for the shorts to, to borrow anymore. And uh, if, if you then go in and ask for the short sellers to give back the stock that they're short, you know, they're in a you know, hell of a mess because they're going to have to run into the market and, and find it somewhere. I think there's a saying, which maybe came up in your interview, maybe not, but I think I'll repeat it for you anyway. Uh, I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it was uh, somebody called Daniel Drew back about 100 years ago. He who sells what isn't hisn must buy it back or go to prison. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it really means that things can be very dire indeed for someone who's short and, you know, it goes the wrong way. So, when I, when I, you know, when I'm bearish on something, I tend to buy puts. Mm-hmm. And to keep my, uh, you know, to keep myself from throwing away too much money uh, and time value, I tend to buy in the money puts. Uh, and when loads and loads of people are doing that, then the prices of puts gets very high. So, um, you know, that's a bit dangerous, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm not a, a very good short seller. Uh, my head off to Simon because, Carkwell, because, you know, he has been an effective short seller. I mean, I'm sure he's had his bad days, but I think he's made some good money on it over the years. He, he says he's made a million and a half shorting Northern Rock, and he only went short Northern Rock when uh, they announced back in, whenever it was, September, that they needed, uh, they needed a bailout. Well, that's that's quite interesting. I remember that time, and as I recall, a lot of people suddenly got very confident that Northern Rock shareholders were going to do okay, and that struck me as very strange because, I mean, it was obvious to me at the time that the government was really um, there to to you know help out the depositors of Northern Rock and not necessarily the shareholders. So, I think. Simon must have picked up on that. Did he talk about his reasons at all? Balance sheets. I see. Okay. 
I think he, he that's his technique. He just looks at the balance sheet, and if it doesn't make sense, he goes short. Interesting. Well, he's not much of a market index guy, is he? I mean, he no, he to... isn't. He looks at specific companies rather than uh, sectors, from what I could gather, because I kind of asked him about general trends, and he was uh, it wasn't something that he. I mean, he was kind of generally bearish on London property, but he said he's been bearish on London property for ages, and uh, he's been wrong. And he was kind of generally bullish on on other things, but but he wasn't. I mean, I kind of asked him to look at the UK PLC and what does the balance sheet say there. But he, he like I say, it was it was more a specific thing than a sector thing with him. I see. Anyway, let's talk about oil, Mike, uh, because this is the big subject at the moment. Um, I've just written a piece for Money Week this week. Um, Anatol Koletsky says the whole thing's a big bubble. I say it's due for a correction, but it's certainly not a big bubble. What, what do you say? Well, I, I'm reminded a little bit of the gold market um, back when it was moving up between 900 and $1,000. I mean, I think we're in that sort of uh, period now for oil where – we're going to see a top. It's going to be a reasonably important top, um, not the peak by a, by a long shot, in my opinion. But, I mean, once we see this top, wherever it is, 140 maybe, um, you know, I think we'll get a, a correction that will last for quite a few months. And um, so I, I think it's a pretty good time to take money off the table. Uh, I mean, if we if we use that, that gold analogy, when it moved up through eight, 850 then through 900 you know it was it was on what i think we called it at the time a once trod path and that's where oil is now i mean it's 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 a new ground it's been moving up in new ground for a while uh, i think it first hit 110 or 120 and pulled back and now now it's burst, burst through it again but i think that that ground back to 120 and maybe even back towards 100 that ground's going to be trod again by by this oil price and so, you know, if I'm buying for the long term, I would hold off and wait for that uh, that retracement to happen. And, you know, I think we'll get a pretty good tracement once the top's in place. So uh, what I'm doing is, you know, I'm still along some gas shares and some coal shares. So over the last week or two, I've been taking money off the table almost every day, selling a little bit. And I, I would hope to get um, down pretty close to zero on my gas and coal shares within the next week or two. I see. And where will you move the money? Well, I, I mean, fortunately, I think, you know, a couple of other markets that we talk about and follow are set up for, you know, a nice, they've formed a nice base and they look like they're set up for a nice move upwards. And what I'm really talking about here is, well, the general junior mining market. And uh, there's some threads which I can put uh, on GEI, some charts I can put on GEI, which are on some threads already. But um, and the other one, I think we need to talk about this in more detail and, you know, in the days to come, is uranium. I agree. Uh, I think um, it's time to do another uranium show, basically. Yeah, I mean, last year when we did it, it was in a very hot market. Um, lots of people who, you know, really had never bought a uranium stock before were jumping in. And, you know, I think we have almost the opposite situation now where, Lots of people are now familiar with uranium. They feel like they've gotten burned. Um, they've thrown, you know, they've sold their stock. They've gotten out a little bit. But the underlying story of uranium is still very, very good. And, you know, I don't want to go into it in great detail now, but I'll just mention, you know, quickly one point. And that is um, there is a fellow who I think we should interview um, soon who was telling me the other day that 
Um, the long-term uranium price is now about $90. So, you know, the spot price is somewhere in the 60s, and the longer-term price really hasn't come down much at all, and it's now well above spot. And that's normally the case when, you know, a correction is about over when you get a big gap like that between a low spot price and a higher forward price. And certainly if you look at the charts, they've formed a beautiful gip type point, ABC down. They've based out nicely. It looks like they're coming off their lows. So, I mean, looking for buying points in here on uranium stocks, I think will prove very profitable. And it's really nice that we can take some profits on these oil and coal stocks and move them into a sector that looks cheap. I uh, have to say, I think um, uh, a lot of the Dines uh, uranium choices, uh, Mawson, UPC, uh, Laramide, you know, they're all up considerably off their lows. Yeah, I'm long already, those three you mentioned, and looking, plus some more, and looking to add my positions in these stocks as well. I mean, not just those three, some other ones too. Um, I guess there are about 10 or 15 stocks at least that are on my watch list right now. And, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, some of them have a lot of cash, um, and, uh, you know, can make it through the next year or two, even if, even if we don't get this bull market. I mean, what you need to be careful, you've got to be a little bit careful with stock selection now. Last year in the early part of the year, everything moved up. And it could be this next move up we see in uranium is going to be more selective. So mm. I think it's really time to be a little bit more careful. I must confess to uh, having sold some of my UPC here. Uh, uh, last week because I just caught a nice move from the bottom. I got in right at the bottom and I had a near double, so I sold some of mine. Well, I, you know, I don't think you can go wrong that way. If it pulls back a bit, you can add more. And if, and if you don't buy that one, there are others that, you know, are still cheap. I mean, that's the great thing about this. I mean, Dine says this theory he calls the Wolfpack theory. And he talks about how, you know, stocks in the same sector, they all move together. The uranium stocks tend to move a bit like that. So if you, if you have one, you know, companies that, you know, have a bit of cash and staying power, you know, just watch them. And if one moves up too fast, sell some and put it into one of the cheap ones. But make sure that, you know, you're keeping, you know, the universe small enough that you've got companies with real future. Yeah. Um, Mike. I noticed last week the CDNX, which we use as a proxy for the Canadian junior miners, was up and the S&P was down. That doesn't happen very often. It's a good point. And, you know, I noticed that too. Um, what, what I think we've seen now is we've seen a bottom in that ratio, a very nice bottom in that ratio, a bottom on the CDNX. And we're seeing, you know, the, the, the potential is there now if... Uh, the potential is certainly there now for a nice move in these juniors. A lot of people will tell you that, you know, the, the time to be getting out of the junior sector is, you know, April or May, and, you know, you should expect a quiet summer. And that's the truth. That, that is true in most years. That's the, definitely that's the seasonal pattern. But this year it's been pretty different. I mean, as you know, we never really saw much of a rally in the juniors in January through March. Uh, the rally we saw lasted about a week and a half. Um, you know, instead of a month and a half, three months. So, you know, this could be the year where sell in May and go away is not not the thing to do. And, um, you know, buying in May may be actually the smart move this year. In fact, I, re I read somewhere that the sell in May and go away idea really only works in years that have strong, you know, periods of, 
strong growth of stock prices in the early part of the year. Yeah, I mean, we haven't had the normal October to April, so why should we have the normal May to September? Exactly, exactly. So anyway, I think, you know, if people are willing to take a bit of a risk, particularly if they're taking some nice profits on their oil stocks here, it's it's a pretty good time to be looking uh, at the juniors and pretty good time to be looking at uranium stocks. Exciting times ahead for Commodity Watch Radio. We have coming up, we're going to do a new property program, uh, looking back at last year's predictions and seeing where we are now. We're going to do a show on uranium, and we're going to should do a show on West End musicals. The next Commodity Watch Radio is going to be on the well-known subject of West End musicals. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to that. I, um, it's a subject that you and I have talked about a little bit on these podcasts before, and I'm looking forward to going into some more detail on that. Well, I, I went and met a leading West End producer last week and uh, interviewed him, and what he had to say was absolutely fascinating. I tried to get an interview with Cameron McIntosh as well, but uh, he was unavailable. <laughs> Well, just wait until we, you know, establish Commodity Watch Radio as uh, being the source for uh, leading information on West End musicals, and then they're going to be, uh, they're going to be, you know, waiting out on the streets to get uh, get their interviews in. I, I should have offered him a trade. I said, I'll look after your uranium and gold stocks, Cameron, if you do an interview on Commodity Watch <laughs> Radio. <laughs> he might have some too. <laughs> I, I would imagine he'd have some gold. Yeah. Well. You know, it's it, it, we've talked about this in the last show a little bit. Is you know how gold, you know, people want to identify it as a bubble market, but it really hasn't had the wide, wide participation that you would expect. So, I think what's happening now is that people are remembering that you know gold can be a very good time and you know a good thing to own in times of inflation. And so, you know, quite a number of well-known people who are old enough to remember those days of the 1970s probably do have some gold, but there are plenty of other people who who don't. And it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, to see these, you know, to see when gold really becomes a bubble and oil really becomes a bubble, how different it is from, from where it is today. I think a lot of people who make big money in entertainment tend to put their the first part of their wealth into property and it's usually unleveraged property property without a, a mortgage on it and the reason for that is they just want to see their wealth and they want their wealth where they can touch it and uh, so I imagine Cameron McIntosh has got a, most of his wealth tied up in property but then uh, you know it's different with him because he's actually an entrepreneur whereas people who make their entertainment maybe from performing and are less good with money you know a lot of them seem to be with Lloyd's for example put their money with Lloyd's which is a you know, it's billed as a safe place to put your money, but it's not really that safe. You can lose quite a lot of money. Well, you can. And, you know, I wonder whether some of the traditional safe havens are really going to be that safe in the years to come. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we know that U.S. property, for example, which has been a traditional bolt hole safe haven for many people uh, since World War II and before, um, since the first world world war even um, it had its first decline since the great depression since the 1930s so and you know and that's continuing so you know maybe some of the traditional safety areas are, are not going to work and you know maybe we should be looking at new ones you know diamonds and west end shows <laughs> all right well michael hampton why don't you give out uh, the uh, website address one more time 
Well, I'm going to give it differently this time. Those who want to be a little bit alternative can find us through www.greenenergyinvestors.com. Okay. I should say that Green Energy Investors and Global Edge Investors, uh, they're two names for the same site. Exactly. And uh, the green energy, I think, is appropriate since we've been talking a little bit about uranium here. Okay. Michael Hampton, thank you very much. Bye-bye, Dan. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.